Go ahead and turn, beloved, to uh, Isaiah 46. And we'll read this text together and, and we'll pray and then we'll get into it tonight. Isaiah chapter 46. And uh, we're going to do the whole thing tonight. Isaiah records for us these words of, of, of the Lord. Bell bows down. Nebo stoops. Their idols are on beasts and livestock. These things that you carry are born as burdens on weary beasts. They stoop. They bow down together. They cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb, even to your old age. I am he, and to gray hairs I will carry you. I have made, and I will bear, I will carry, and will save. To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me, that we may be alike? Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales hire a goldsmith and he makes it into a god. Then they fall down and worship. They lift it to their shoulders. They carry it. They set it in its place and it stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. Remember this and stand firm. Recall to mind, you transgressors, remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed. And I will do it. Listen to me, you stubborn of heart. You who are far from righteousness. I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off. And my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion. For Israel, my glory. Hmm. Let's pray together. Father, what a great text of Scripture this is. And what, um, what an incredible thought. Um, that, Lord, you're the one that has made us. You will bear us, you will carry us, and you save us. Uh, all glory and praise goes to you for those things. Father, there's nothing that we've done to contribute to our salvation. There's nothing that we can do. But what you demand of your people is an undivided heart. You demand of us, Father God, a heart that, you know, is, Father, that is not divided between worldly aspirations and worldly desires and worldly idols and you, the one true God. You demand that we have a united heart, one that fears your name. And so, Lord, you're the one that can give us that. You're the only one who can, and you do it, Father, by your Spirit and through your Word. And so I pray that you would do that tonight. Father, as we look at this text tonight, we, I pray that you'd give us you know, eyes to see and ears to understand, that we would perceive exactly the, the heart of this text, and that, Lord God, um, that you would use these words in our own lives, that uh, we would not <clears throat> regard them as just ancient words written on a page, um, that we would not regard it as ancient truth, but we would regard it as truth that is eternal, not just ancient, eternal, and uh, that demands our, our obedience and, and our belief, our faith. So thank you for this time tonight. I pray you give me grace by your spirit uh, to teach this text in a way that's pleasing in your sight and that's beneficial for your people. And I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right, beloved. So 
This text that we're looking at tonight, Isaiah 46, is really kind of um, addressed to the Jewish exiles that were in Babylon that were still persisting in their unbelief. Okay? That were still persisting in their unbelief despite God's, you know, providential hand, despite the words that Isaiah had written to them. They were remaining just in, in, in a lot of ways for them. They were, they were remaining torn between the Canaanite gods, the gods of Babylon, and, and the one true God. Okay? That's kind of the idea. And, 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 and here's the thing we got to remember, right? We've mentioned this several times, but I want, this, I want us to remember this, that the exiles in Babylon were not a uniform group. They were a mixed company, okay? The exiles in Babylon, some of them were what we would call wheat, and some of them were tares, okay? And, and that's just the reality of it. There were those that were in Babylon, right? Those that were, <clears throat> that were you know, who trusted in the Lord, who trusted and acknowledged His sovereignty, who believed His word, who sought to live in obedience to him as much as they could in Babylon, right? Who um, put their hope in his promises of a reconstituted Israel, uh, who put their hope in a rebuilt place of worship, you know, the temple, and who put their hope in the promise of the Redeemer, the divine, the divine human Messiah, whom Isaiah described as wonderful counselor, right? Mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, the one whom of, its, of whom it said, of the increase of his government and of his peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So there was a group that was trusting in the Lord, looking to this ultimate deliverance that God was going to bring and believing in the temporal deliverance from Babylon, okay? They trusted God would bring all these things to pass. But then, there were those who remained in the exact same unbelief that got them into captivity to begin with, okay? There was the same group that continued in the idolatry that, that, they, had, that they had given themselves to, right? And who brought the punishment of God upon themselves. Those who would certainly confess, and this is important to understand, they would certainly confess that Yahweh was God. They would say, oh yeah, Yahweh's God. The God of Israel is He's God. But their hearts are also divided, as I mentioned earlier, between the gods of the Canaanites and the Lord. They couldn't say that with a united heart. They acknowledged Him as one among many, rather than supremely God, right? And their actions and their, their, their lifestyle, everything about them demonstrated an unbelieving and an uncommitted heart. In fact, Really, they were just, they were the sons of their fathers. They were the very kinds of people of whom God said earlier in Isaiah 29, this people draw near to me with their mouth and they honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me. Okay? That was the reality. And so, here in this text, the Lord is confronting their stubborn unbelief. He's confronting the duplicity of their hearts. And really, this text breaks down into into two main sections, okay? It, it, it divides into two main sections. And the first one deals with this contrast between the Babylonian idols and the one true God, right? So read verses 1 through 7 with me again, and then we'll, we'll just kind of like break the text down and talk about it, right? Through the prophet Isaiah, the Lord says these words. This is God speaking. Bel bows down. Nebo stoops. Their idols are on beasts and livestock, these things you carry are born as burdens on weary beasts. They stoop and bow down together. 
They cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel who have been born by me from before your birth and carried from the womb, even to your old age I am he. And to gray hairs I will carry you. I have made and I will bear. I will carry and will save. To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be alike? Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales hire a goldsmith and he makes it into a god and they fall, then they fall down and worship. They lift it to their shoulders. They carry it. They set it in its place and it stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. Now here's what I want us to see, okay? These seven verses... The central part of these seven verses is verses 3 through 5, right? That describe the Lord and His relationship to Israel throughout history. But on either end of these verses is a divine diatribe, okay? It is a, a, a rebuke against the false gods of Babylon, okay? And it's actually, it's kind of caustic. You know, I'm just, it is, right? I, I just want to point some things out here. The, the two main gods in Babylon were Bel, okay? Also, another name for Marduk, right? Or Baal, even. And then Nebo. And I need to give you a little background on this so you understand the scathing nature of what God is, you know, saying here. His disdain in verses 1 and 2. Bel, or Marduk, okay, was worshipped as the supreme god in Babylon, okay? And over time, Bel came to be considered the creator of all things, okay? He was the creator god, according to the uh, the the. Babylonian creation epic that was called the Enuma Elish, okay? Nebo was the son of Marduk, okay? And he was the patron god of the city of Borsippa, which was southwest of Babylon, okay? And he was considered to be, now get this, he was considered to be the god of wisdom and the god of the word. He was the revealer of Bel's will for the Babylonian nation, right? So you can see... Can't you? This satanic and distorted um, counterfeit of the father and the son, right? It's, it's ridiculous, right? But, but it's one of Satan's chief ploys when it comes to false religions. Anyway, here's the deal. Once a year, okay, at the New Year celebration, which was the biggest festival in Mesopotamia, it was absolutely huge, okay? It was this massive event in Babylon what, would, what they would do is this. They, the, the people that were in Borsippa would, would, would grab the, the idol of Nebo and they'd put him on some carts and stuff or they'd put him on the back of livestock or whatever and he would be carried from Borsippa to Babylon, right? And then he and Bel Marduk would be, you know, paraded through the streets of Babylon, okay, on the backs of these livestock or, or maybe on, you know, carts or whatever. But father and son, they would be paraded through the city and everybody would bow down and they would give obeisance and they would offer sacrifices along the way and they would do all this stuff. And there was this great procession that would go to the Esagila Temple, okay, which is one of the, not, you know, there's only seven wonders of the world, but it is a wonder of the ancient world. That temple is remarkable. It's thoroughly pagan, but the building of it is remarkable. And, and if you look it up, it's pretty amazing to look at. But anyways, this again, I want to emphasize, was a huge festival and it was knolled throughout the world. Okay? It was the religious event of the year. Okay? And it all centered around, you know, this, this pagan, you know, environment. And so when they would get to the Esagila temple, here's what would happen. Nebo would reveal through his priests, okay, through his devotees, by supposed divine inspiration, 
what these guys were to write on the tables of destiny. That's what they were called, right? Which revealed the fates that were decreed by the gods for the upcoming year, right? And, and how Bel and Nebo would bless the Babylonians and how they would continue in their, you know, unfettered conquest of the Middle East. Well, apparently they got it the wrong, wrong the year that Cyrus invaded. But anyway, right? But, but this was a big deal, right? And here's the issue with that. Okay, this has been going on ever since the exiles were taken into Babylon. This was like a yearly thing. And some of the Jewish exiles were seduced by it. And their hearts got drawn out to these other gods through this annual party, right? And so in this text, God is telling to these yet unbelieving exiles the truth about Bel and Nebo. They're nothing. The great gods of Babylon, right? They're just, you know, they're just exalted in Mesopotamia. These great gods are going to bow down and stoop before the hand of the Lord. That's what he's saying. That these gods are nothing but a worthless burden upon their worshipers. That's what he's getting at. In fact, in mocking tones, the Lord describes them as weighing down the beasts and the livestock. That they themselves can carry no one but must be carried themselves, right? They've been paraded around as gods. They've been you know, believed to unfold the destiny of Babylon. But it's, but it's all garbage. And they've got no real power to do anything good for their worshipers. And their demonically inspired words are empty because they're imaginary gods. And just like their worshipers, they're going to be carried off into captivity. Right? They weren't going to escape the fate of their devotees. And then if you jump down to verses 6 and 7, you see why, right? Look at it again. Those who lavish gold from the person, weigh out silver in the scales, hire a goldsmith, he makes it into a god, then they fall down and worship, they lift it to their shoulders, they carry it, they set it in its place, it stands there, it cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. What's the problem? Well, here's the problem. Again, they're man-made idols. They're physical representations of man-made gods. They're created from the metals of the earth and the imaginations of fallen men. That's the point. These idols, which represented the invited gods, they're impotent because the gods they represent are no gods. And so the issue is this. If you take these gods as your gods, all the burden's on you. It all rests on you. Right? You're the one who, who has to bend over backwards to carry it, to find for it a place of honor, right? to, to serve it. And you put it down there and it just stands there and it does nothing. It just looks at you. It's like a cat. <laughs> you know? It doesn't do anything for it. It just looks at you. Right? They, do, they, they, they cannot do anything because there's no life there. They can't answer the pleas and, 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 and the prayers for deliverance from their worshipers. They can't save because they're worthless. They're weak. They're, they're, they're the inventions of, of a carnal imagination and they are powerless. Now, here's the thing, right? Like, my goodness, we, would, we get to this point in Isaiah. It's Isaiah 46. We've been in here for a while, man. Like, we all know this is true, don't we? Like, we, we read this and we go, well, right, duh, right? You would think the Israelites at this point may have come to that same conclusion, wouldn't you? You would think that all of them would have. 
You would think that there would be no divided heart anywhere in Babylon and that everybody would be waiting for God to do something to rescue them, right? But that's not the case at all. Why is that? Well, because people are stubborn. Because they're foolish. Because their fallen habits are awfully, you know, deeply ingrained into them. We look at that and we go, man, honestly, if we're reading that, let's just be honest. We're looking at that and going, I wouldn't, if I were there, that would not be me. Not so fast, my friend. This really is a word about, you know, a unity of heart toward God and a rejection of, God, of, of false idols that every single one of us needs to hear. Okay? That every one of us, you know, who professes faith in Christ needs to hear. Listen to me. We need to understand the idolatry of our age and what, idol, what, what the idols of our age are, how they present themselves, because they don't present themselves as little gold statues or little silver statues of goofy-looking gods. Right? That's not how it works. Like nobody's going down to gods or us this weekend and picking something off the shelf and bringing it home and putting it on the, you know, the mantle. We're not doing that, right? Nobody would do that. But here's the deal. Here's the deal. Here's what we need to understand. The sin that often divides our heart from God is nothing less than an idol. Man, that's a strong statement. You better be able to back it up. Well, guess what? The Word of God can. We need to understand, listen, so many times, the problem for Christians is that we rely on our own wisdom. And we give our hearts to little gods while we claim that our heart is exclusively God's capital G. Right? And we think that we can somehow make sin serve us. That we can, that you know what, sin, you can kind of tame sin. It's hard, but you can do it, right? And that we can make it serve us, and that we can make it, you know, we can, we can use it to some sort of benefit, and that it can help us obtain what we want and what we think we need, which is exactly why Paul calls covetousness, what? Idolatry. When he says in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry, right? Covetousness, beloved, is dissatisfaction with God and what He has given to us. That's the root of it. It's, it's, it's the inordinate desire to obtain the thing that we think that we are lacking, to possess that thing that we don't have that we think God should give us. That, you know, whatever it might be. And, and really, the sin of covetousness, idolatry, is really rooted in discontentment with God and His providence. Are you with me? In essence, we, we start thinking to ourselves, you know, this object that God has denied me, that thing or that person that, that I can possess, that would satisfy me. Or, or this experience or some better circumstance or you know, whatever it is, according to my own wisdom, that it'll satisfy my soul. And if I've got to obtain it in defiance of God's word, then so be it. That's covetousness. 
Because those desires become your God. You hearing me? Well, that's not the God that I profess. No, but it's the God you worship. It's the God you worship. And that's the essence of idolatry. It's why Paul links the two of these together, right? Idolatry, man, it's any tendency in the human heart to dethrone God for the sake of something else. To use something else in the place of God to gain what you think you need. Whether it is money or sex or ambition or power or possessions or pride or even something as seemingly innocent as ease or respectability. You hearing me? Anytime our pursuit of something is driven or energized by the belief that it can fulfill the longing of our souls in ways and means that God in His divine providence cannot, we are guilty of idolatry. I'm going to say that again. You may want to write this down. Anytime our pursuit of something is driven or energized by the belief that it can fulfill the longing of our souls, <coughs> in ways and means that God in His divine providence cannot, we are guilty of idolatry. And it's a foolish and a detrimental choice because idols can never satisfy our true needs. It was the first bite. Hmm? It was the first bite. Yeah, exactly. And then it's like, oops. Yeah. Go back to verses 3 and 5 and you can see why this is true. You see the divine contrast here that the Lord draws between himself and the false gods of Babylon. Look at it again. He says, listen to me, O house of Jacob. All the remnant of the house of Israel who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb, even to your old age I am he. And to gray hairs I will carry you. I have made and I will bear. I will carry and I will save. To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be alike? Do you see what the Lord is doing here? Listen to me. Hear what I am saying to you and take it to heart in other words. Like enough of this you know, halting between two opinions now. You better hear me. It matters. Then he addresses the nation, you know, as, as, you know, the house and the remnant, his people, all this stuff, right? And he describes how he's carried them, you know, well, first of all, that he planned for and brought them into existence, right? That he bore them before they were even born, bore them up before they were even born. That he carried them from the infant stages of the nation throughout their entire history, that he alone is the one who's made him. He alone has borne their burdens. That he alone has carried the weight of the nation upon his shoulders. And that he's the one that'll save them. And do it by his own mighty hand. He's going to do it. Because, first, it's in his nature to be a saving God. Second, because it is a complete compliance with his divine will. God has a people he's going to save. Out of the Old Testament nation of Israel and the nations around them and out of the world today. And that faithful remnant is going to be saved through Christ bearing the real and actual burden of their sins upon the cross. He's going to carry it, not us. Think about that. See, that's why salvation by our own hands is impossible. You understand? First of all, salvation by our own hands requires that we create a caricature of God or an idol or whatever else. And then it requires that we rely upon ourselves or our imaginary God 
and regard Him as the one who made us and the one that can bear us along and the one who will carry us and the one who will ultimately save us. It's foolishness. It's foolishness. It's to trade revealed truth for my imaginary story. You know? We revise what's clearly revealed into something else that we like. And in the process, we destroy the message altogether. It's kind of like Disney and the way that they remake all the classic hits, right? No, you know what I'm talking about? Like, you know, they did, what's the latest one? Snow White. Boy, did they mess that up, right? Talk about taking that one and just completely, you know, here's this great story, and now we're just going to completely rework it and destroy it. You know, and the verdict of the people is, well, bravo, we're not going to the movies. And Disney can't understand why. It's because you took what was good, or not good. I mean, nothing, right? I, I, I get that. You took what was a classic. There we go. And you made it into something nobody can recognize. Same thing here. We take the, the revealed truth of God, who he is, and then we, you know, people will twist it into something that's unrecognizable and believe that that can save them. And that was going on with these, these Jewish exiles. That was, that's what was going on with these unbelieving Jewish exiles, right? I mean, think about this for a moment. If they had just stopped and thought about this for a moment, they would have realized that, that God was at work in their midst. They didn't cease to exist. Or they, they didn't cease to exist though they deserved to, right? They deserved to be stricken from the face of the earth. Did they not? I mean, the military power that came against them should have absolutely ground them into extinction. It didn't. Why do you suppose that was? Right? The fact of their captivity, their experience of exile because of their own sin, that didn't contradict the fact that their, their God had been carrying them and continued to do so. And he addresses them here as house of Jacob and house of Israel to bring to their minds the whole long story that established their identity. And to think, when in all that time was the burden ever placed on them to carry their own God? Never. Not one time. And they never will. We'll never have to prop up Christ. Because he's not like the failed gods of Babylon. With that in mind, I want you to see this. Because this is the, man, this is the guts to it. He calls them to remember and listen. Look at verse 8. He says, remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. Here's what I want you to see. The gist of those verses is that the Jewish exiles have a decision to make. The unbelieving Jewish exiles have a decision to make. What are they going to choose? They can either choose the divine shepherding of their souls by the Lord according to His Word, or they can choose the sure destruction of idolatry. But they've got to choose. They've got to pick. Right? He's bringing them to a place of, of, of crisis here. And he calls them to remembrance, right? 
And remember what that means, like we talked about on Sunday. If you don't remember because you slept, I'll remind you. To remember in a biblical sense means to recall and recapture as much of the reality and the significance of something or someone as you possibly can. Okay? It's the idea of bringing that thing or that person to mind once again and then having your thoughts and your desires and your affections and your actions your entire life, your very life, shaped and directed by that remembrance. And so he's saying, you, you need to remember. You need to remember this. You need to remember the things of old. You need to take to heart what you already know. Well, what are the things that are to remember? What's the former things of old? It's everything that God has done. Everything that was recorded for Israel's memory. Okay? So we need to think about that. It's not just going back to the calling of Abraham and Ur of the Chaldees. No, no. We're going back to creation. We're going back to creation and the flood and the patriarchs and God's saving actions in their lives, their, their exodus from Egypt, the conquest of the promised land, the preservation of the nation in the days of the judges when everybody only did what was right in their own sight. How did they ever survive through that? Right? The consolidation of the great kingdom under David and then Solomon and on and on. And, because, and here's the deal. The Lord calls them to remember these things because their testimony is unanimous. Only the God who did all this has the right to be called God. Nobody else. That's the point. That are remember those things and to stand firm in them. That is, make a rational account of all these things and then choose faith and not unbelief. That's the idea. And I want us to take note here of the words that the Lord uses to identify the unbelieving Jewish exiles. All right? He's not gentle with them. He calls them transgressors in verse 8. Look at verse 12. Stubborn of heart and those who are far from righteousness. Okay? In other words... The Lord wants them to see and understand they're not victims. This didn't just happen to fall upon them. This isn't, I was just walking down the road, minding my own business, and the calamity befell me. And I don't know how it happened. Right? That's not what this is. They're not victims. They're transgressors who are continuing in obstinate unbelief just as their forefathers had. And so rather than an expression of like, you know, gentleness and, and wooing and compassion and pity for their plight, it's actually a rebuke. It's a rebuke for their faithlessness and it's a warning to them. It's strong language, no doubt, but it's not unloving. It's strong language, but this is the language of loving admonition rather than total rejection, which it could have been. Like, I'm done. God could have said, you know what? I'm done bearing with you. The remnant that is in Babylon that is saved, that's going to be it. You guys are cut off. Go follow Nebo and, and Bel and, and follow them into your destruction. I'm done with you guys. It's not what he does. It's not what he does. What this is intended to do, using these words, is intended to <coughs> jolt the unbelieving exiles out of a very dangerous and sinful state of mind. And bring them to faith. Their ultimate good's in view here, right? 
I want I think about this too. You know, lots of times, lots of times we associate hardness of heart with what? What do we associate it with? People that are just unwilling to believe, their hearts hardened. We usually associate that with what? Hmm? Stubbornness, yeah, stubbornness, arrogance, right? We think about it, yeah, pride, right? We, we, we think about it as like defiance, usually, by those who don't think they need delivered, right? But you know what? And I think we need to consider this. Hardness of heart can also be revealed in those who recognize their need, but refuse to believe that God can meet it. Hmm? I'll say that again. Hardness of heart, okay? can also be revealed in those who recognize their need but cannot believe that God can actually meet it. Think about what they might have been thinking. Is God really strong enough to deliver us from the gods of Babylon, from the hands of Babylon? Why would He want to save us at all since our sin is so grievous? Is the conquest of 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 Babylon by another pagan Cyrus really an acceptable mode of deliverance? This is all a pipe dream, right? And there are people who remain opposed to the message of the gospel, who remain opposed to the message of the word of God because they just, they can't fathom that God can actually deliver them. And I think that's partially the case here in, in, in Babylon. And yet the word of the Lord stands. Salvation, physical deliverance, you know, from exile, that's coming. The Lord's going to act through Cyrus to deliver the nation. And here's the reality. The, their opinion in the matter doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. The question that's really before, you know, them is not whether the nation as a whole will be repatriated. They're, they will. Whether they believe it or not, you know, according to God's own purpose and plan, they are going to return to Judah and Jerusalem, right? As Charles Spurgeon says, and I love this, this is a great statement by him. He said, God writes with a pen that never blots. He speaks with a tongue that never slips. He acts with a hand that never fails. Right on. Right? The real question is not, are they going to be repatriated? The real question is whether or not these unbelieving exiles are going to return to the Lord in repentance and faith and partake of the spiritual salvation that will be the result ultimately of this repatriation. You with me? Are they going to cease from their unbelief and their divided hearts and return to the Lord in repentance and faith? Because here's the thing, Israel remains central to God's purposes, right? The Messiah's got to come through the nation. But if they continue in their obstinate unbelief, they will find themselves missing out on their greater salvation yet to come. They'll miss the big picture. In fact, look at verses 12 and 13 again. He says, listen to me. Listen to me, you stubborn of heart. You who are far from righteousness... I bring near my righteousness. It's not far off. And my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel my glory. Again, he says, listen to me. Regard my words the weight that they deserve, right? You are stubborn of heart right now. You, you are 
far from righteousness. You, you can't make yourself righteous in my eyes. You're far from being right with God. And that's because of their own hearts and their own actions. And so God's the one that's going to have to bring forth righteousness. God's the one that's got to provide the righteousness that everyone needs in order to stand before Him, to be accepted with Him, and to stand firm in their faith before Him. God's the one that's got to do that. And He does. He does. The idolater makes a God of his own image. The Lord intends to make His people in His image. And, the, and, and again, He's saying, look, my righteousness isn't far off. It's coming. It's right around the corner. Salvation will not delay. So you better not waste time. You better stop dragging your feet. You better come to a decision of who's God and who isn't. Because I'm going to put salvation in Zion and, you know, for, for, and for Israel, His glory. He's going to provide true redemption for spiritual Israel. And that salvation is ultimately going to be revealed in the Lord Jesus Christ, which is the very point of the Lord's rescue of the Jewish exiles from Babylon by His chosen means. Cyrus and the physical redemption of the nation is just a faint picture and necessary event and the ultimate purpose of God. In other words, quit trying to find your salvation in Bell and Nebo. Quit looking for your salvation somewhere else other than me. Quit trying to find your salvation in something that you conjure up by your own imagination that you think is fitting. Just cease and desist from your foolishness. Stop it, right? In fact, that truth dovetails perfectly with the testimony of Paul in Romans 10. Think about this. Romans 10, verses 6 through 13. The righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven? That is, to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. In your mouth and in your heart. That is, the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with a mouth one confesses and is saved. For the Scripture says, everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call upon Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's the same decision for us, for people in this age, right? It, and the remnant that was in Babylon, it was either choose Nebo and, and Bel and, and choose shame or choose the Lord and have life. It's the same today. And it's all because of God's faithfulness and not ours. It's all because of God's faithfulness and not ours. Casper, Gasper Hodge says this. Gasper Hodge, probably none of you have ever heard of this guy. But listen to what he says. He says, when God's people departed from him, in the Old Testament biblical, account, uh, biblical accounts, all the more emphasis was put upon his faithfulness so that the only hope of his wayward people lay not only in his grace and mercy, but also in his faithfulness, which stands in marked contrast with the faithlessness and inconstancy of his people. Amen. God is faithful. His word stands. I have made... And I will bear, I will carry, and I will save. To whom will you liken me and make me equal? Nobody.